so good to be back at Panama Street. It was a lot of fun to try to get up the stairs with a knee brace and crutches on, really hoping and praying you don't fall in front of all your friends. So I'm glad that went well the, uh, the first attempt. Shelton mentioned that I hurt my knee. Uh, I, it was bound to happen. I play basketball all the time, but I'm not very good, and I'm not very athletic, and I just won't stop playing, so this was bound to happen at some time. Uh, but thankful so much for the opportunity to be here with you today. And if my knee gives out before I'm done preaching, I've got no one to blame but myself for being long-winded. So I'll make sure that that doesn't happen. You know, while uh, we were here this weekend, we did a lot of things, hanging out, catching up with friends and things like that. And one thing that we did is we played some board games. And I cannot probably for the rest of my life think of board games without thinking of Miss Winslet and how nice she was while we were members here to open up her home. I think she has at least one copy of every board game that's ever been invented. And she was kind enough to share those with us, and we'll never forget that. So I'm glad it worked out that we could both be here on the same day. When I was 15, I preached for the first time. Uh, my dad was a preacher, and he was sick, and he asked me to fill in for him, and it went awful. Everything about it was awful. My preparation was awful. My lesson was awful. The delivery was probably worst of all. And so when we were done, people were saying, oh, good job. You did a great job. And some of them not even believably so. But I said, no, that was awful. And well, I've checked that box. I tried. Preaching's not for me. I'll never do that again. So fast forward three years, I hadn't ever preached again and hadn't really ever thought about it and had tried to actively avoid doing it. And we come to Panama Street, and there's a five o'clock preacher's training session before services every Sunday, and Frank Chesser asks me to preach. And so I say, sure, I'll be glad to do that. And in my head, here's what I was thinking. There is no way I'm going to do that, but I'm pretty smart. I will buy some time, and I will figure out a way to get out of this. And so because of my respect for Brother Frank, I, and not wanting to disappoint him, I never did. And I preached again. And while it wasn't a, a world-class sermon by any means, it was good enough that I at least thought, well, hey, you know, maybe it won't be a train wreck every time, and maybe I can do this. So any sermon that I have ever preached or any time I've ever taught publicly is because of Frank's asking me and me not wanting to let him down. And so it's an honor to be back here today and to preach to you guys. The things that we studied when I was a freshman here at Faulkner in our Bible classes, here in, in this Bible class, had really set the stage in the preparation for our lesson today. God has shown himself to us, of course in his written word, but also through the lives of people. All throughout the pages of the Bible, we learn about God and his very nature through the ways that he interacts with the heroes, the characters in the Bible. We're told in the book of James that Elijah was a man of like passions like we are. And what that tells us is as good as Elijah was, and he was great, the wonderful things that he did, God reminds us Elijah is a man just like you are. And I used him just like I can use you if you will give yourself to me in my service. And for me, that's encouraging. And God reminds us, don't place Elijah up on this pedestal. He's not the hero of the story, but he's just a man. So since God has revealed himself to us through people, what can we learn when we look at the characters of the Bible? Not just about those individuals and their stories, but how can we see God more clearly? How can we learn about the purpose of Jesus? How can we learn to be better Christians by what we read about from the characters in the pages of our Bible? What do they show us? You know, it will be no surprise that Jesus is the most referenced character, the most referenced person in the Bible. But it might surprise us to find out that uh, the top ten list of those biblical people that are mentioned. And in that list, Abraham is number seven. So I want us to think this morning for a few moments what we can learn from the life of Abraham that will help us to see Jesus more clearly and that will help us to be better Christians. 
Abraham is mentioned by name 287 times in the ESV and, and referenced even more. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 tells us that Jesus was foreknown or he was foreordained before the foundation of the world. So what that means for us is that Jesus was the plan for the world even before there was a world. Now we are at a distinct advantage in human history. We are able to read our Bibles and look back through history books and look back through time and see how God unfolded his plan. We know in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, looking back, we're told that the gospel, the good news about Jesus come in the flesh to earth is that he came. He lived that perfect life. He died. He was buried, but he rose again. And because of that, we can have salvation. We know that looking back, what they did not know. We look back to Romans chapter 6. We see that we reenact that death, burial, and resurrection with our own baptism. And we, as it were, put to death that old person. We sever the relationship with who we used to be, and we're a new creature, a new creation in Jesus Christ. We know that looking back. We look back further and we see in Acts chapter 2 when they found out that they had just put to death God in the flesh. And they cry out, what should we do to be saved? And Peter tells them, well, if you will change your mind about who you thought God was, who you thought Jesus was, and you will bow in obedience to the king, put him as the king of your life, if you'll repent, if you'll be baptized, then you can be saved. And the good news for us today is that we can still do those exact same things and be saved in that exact same way. We know that looking back. That's what the plan was before there was even a world. And that's what happened. But how did we get there? What was the plan, that foreknown, foreordained plan that was put into place even before the world was created? You see, we know things that they didn't know. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7 tells us, We have this treasure in jars of clay, or some versions say earthen vessels, to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This verse tells us that God has put something wonderful in a container that is cheap and replaceable, us. Now, that doesn't mean we're cheap to God and that we're worthless to God. As a matter of fact, we're told that we are His handiwork. Some translations say His masterpiece. He loved us so much that He took on flesh and dwelt among us, was tempted like we are, and gave up His life. But this verse is intended to show us the comparison between us and God. And there is no comparison. God reigns supreme. But we are those earthen vessels, those jars of clay, God has always used people to accomplish His purposes. He can use us today. But one of the major milestones along the way, an important piece of the puzzle, was a man named Abraham. So I want us to look at Genesis chapter 12 when we're first introduced to Abraham. And we will march quickly through to chapter 22 and just notice a couple verses, a couple things in each chapter as we look through the life of Abraham. And then find out how we can be better Christians because of that today. So look at chapter 12, verse 1. God tells Abraham to get up and go to a land that he will show him. Have you ever thought about the practicality of that? Why would God ask Abraham to get up and to move as they begin this relationship? We'll spend most of our time in Genesis, but if you want to listen along or look at this quickly, Joshua chapter 24 in verse 2 gives us some background information on that. Joshua here is talking to all the people. He's trying to stir them up in remembrance of all the great things that God has done for them. And he says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So Abraham 
was not from a family that believed in one God. Abraham was not necessarily even from a family that believed in or knew about the one God of the Bible. The people where Abraham lived, they believed in many gods. So most people believed in a cosmic deity of some sort that controlled things in some way, but they didn't necessarily have a close relationship with that vague idea of a god. They also believed in uh, country gods, like their, their country, their nation would have a god, and then they even had local and family gods that they worshipped. And so there were a multiplicity of gods that these people, quote-unquote gods, that these people worshipped. One way that might help us understand it is if you've got a problem in this community, who are you more likely to go to? The president or maybe a local councilman? Well, of course, someone on the local level. It's not that you don't believe in the president or that that's not part of our government, but you're more likely to get help from someone on a local level. And you're more likely to be able to contact them. And so it was with them. They had a multiplicity of gods, and they spent most of their time, their focus, worshiping their family gods and their local gods. So when the God tells Abraham to get up and to get out of his country, he's not just saying, leave your family. He's not just say, le saying, leave your security, your, your inheritance. But he's saying, get up, get away from these false ideas of God, and I'm going to show you who your God is. And so Abraham takes off. He takes some of his family. They leave their homeland and the rest of their family behind. And they leave. Now look at verse 2. God is about to make three promises to Abraham that will shape the rest of the Old Testament. If you're like me in any way and the Old Testament is ever confusing for you or hard to understand as it was when I first arrived here as a freshman, these three verses will help you understand the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Old Testament. Because no matter where we look in the rest of the Old Testament, God will be fulfilling one of these three promises to Abraham. Look at verse 2. God tells Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. Skipping down to verse 7, he says, Unto your seed will I give this land. And then back up in verse 3, he says, In thee will all families of the earth be blessed. So the three promises God makes to Abraham, you're, father, you're, you're childless, you've tried, you've tried, you've wanted children, but you've never had them. But guess what? I'm going to make a great nation of you. You're going to have a lot of family, a lot of descendants. He says, I'm going to give those descendants land to live in. And then finally, he says, every family that's ever lived, past, present, and future, will be blessed through you. Now, when we look back through time, we're able to see what that third promise means. Galatians chapter 3 tells us that in Christ, Jesus, the blessings of Abraham came to the Gentiles. Luke chapter 2 and verse 10, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. This third promise is that Jesus is going to come through the seed of Abraham. Jesus will be a descendant of the family of Abraham. Now look at verse 4. Abraham is 75 years old. Now turn to Genesis chapter 13. Look at verses 5 through 7. As Abraham leaves and takes his family, the land that they go into is not able to hold them. God has blessed them too much for the area. Have you ever felt like that? God has blessed you and blessed you and blessed you more than you deserve, more than you can handle. You're even living out of the overflow. And that's the kind of God that our God is. Their flocks and their families and their servants, they take up too much room. They need too many resources. And so, as people do, they start to fight. Look at verse 8. Abraham says, let's not fight. We're brethren. Let's be at peace. Notice about Abraham that he is a peacemaker. The Bible doesn't say blessed are the peace havers, but blessed are the peacemakers. If you go into a congregation, into a family, into a community, and you find peace, it's not there by accident, but it's there because there were people that made that peace happen. Peace is hard work. It takes work. It takes focus. It takes effort. 
And that's the kind of person that Abraham was. When there was conflict, he didn't puff himself up, but he humbled himself. Can you make peace out of drama? Well, Abraham could. Look at verse 9. Abraham defers to Lot and lets him choose the land where he'll go. Verses 10 through 11, Lot went towards the cities, toward the city of Sodom and toward the city of Gomorrah. Verses 12 through 24 are all about the land that Abraham chooses. He goes into the land of Canaan. God tells him to look in every direction. And he says, every direction as far as you can see, this is the land that I'm going to give you. So not only will God give land to Abraham, but it will be this land, the land of Canaan. In verse 16, God says to Abraham, I'll make your seed as plentiful as the dust of the earth. Now Genesis 14. Some nations go to war with Sodom and Gomorrah, and it does not go well for Sodom and Gomorrah. And taken away in the spoil of that is Lot and his family, who have apparently moved in closer to the city. One man, and one man only, escapes and runs to tell Abraham what's happened to Lot. So what does Abraham do? He mounts up with 318 of his men, and he overtakes the people that had captured Lot, and he kills them. And he frees Lot and his people. And verse 20 is where we're introduced to Melchizedek, the king and the priest, and he tells us that God is the one that gave Abraham this victory. And at the end of the chapter, verses 21 through 22, the king of Sodom, he tries to give Abraham a reward for helping him save face, for saving some of his people. But Abraham refuses it. He says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. God wanted, uh, Abraham wanted to make sure that God got all of the credit. Rolling right along, look at chapter 15. In verse 1, God tells Abraham, Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield, and your reward shall be very great. Now look at verse 2. Up until this point, Abraham has trusted God. He's listened to God. He's obeyed God. But now Abraham starts to question God. In verse 2 he says, God, I, I'm still childless. Have you ever felt you needed to remind God you were there? God, I'm here. God, I'm hurting. God, I'm going through something. God, do you care? If so, then you can understand Abraham's frustration. But in verses 4 through 5, God is very gracious. He's patient with Abraham. He's kind. He's gentle. He assures Abraham and says, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able. Then he says, So shall your offspring be. Look at verse 6. That reassures Abraham. That strengthens his faith. Verse 6 says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it unto him as righteousness. In verse 13, God tells Abraham, You'll have a lot of offspring, and I will give you this land, but it's going to be a while. In verse 13, God tells Abraham that it will be 400 years before his descendants will grow into a nation while they're in bondage. And we know that's exactly what happened when Joseph went into Egypt. We're able to know that looking back. Have you ever wondered why God didn't just give the, Abraham, the land to Abraham immediately? I and mean, why the, the song and dance? Why the runaround? Why such a long period of 400 years to make Abraham wait for these promises? Why not give it to him in his lifetime and let him see this goal, this promise, realized and accomplished while he's alive? Well, verse 16 gives us the answer. Verse 16, God is, he's gracious again. And this time, not just with Abraham, but with the people who are already in the land. God says the reason that he will not take the land from its current inhabitants and give it to Abraham immediately is the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Did you know that the Lord is 
not slow to fulfill his promise, but is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In John chapter 3 and verse 17, we're called, told that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world because the fact is we stood condemned already, but he came into the world to save it. God is in the saving business. And so he spends the four, next 400 years of human history giving the Amorites time, giving them more grace, being patient with them. He gives them a lot of time to be saved, but once they've completely rejected God's grace, God kicks them out of the land, but not yet. Look at chapter 16. In chapter 16, Abraham makes maybe his largest mistake, a mistake that we still see results from in conflict today. In verses 1 through 6, Sarah says to Abraham, I apparently can't have kids. Take my handmaid, Hagar, sleep with her and have us a child by her. Now, on the surface to us, this seems very out of character, almost inexcusable, and certainly wasn't part of God's plan. But in this day and age, it was common for people to have a surrogate. And you think about it, you've got a whole lineage of family. You've got money. You've got a family name. And then a man and a woman can't have a child. What are they to do? Who do their assets go to? Who does their money go to? Who carries on the family name, the family tradition, the family work? So a surrogate might step in in this community, in this culture, and in this world and, and help the family have a child. But that wasn't God's plan, wasn't God's intention. And so they take matters into their hand, maybe like some around them might have done. And so Hagar conceives a child. And the end of the verse says, And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. And that's a problem. For us, don't ever let someone's voice be bigger to you than the voice of God. And you won't believe this, but when they took matters into their own hand, it didn't go well. Hagar conceived a child and had a child, and she rubbed it, as it were, in the face of Sarah. And it bothered Sarah. And so there was conflict in the house, and Abraham was called up in the middle. And he told Sarah to do whatever she wanted with Hagar. And so Sarah treats Hagar so poorly that she decides to leave and runs away. In verse 7, I wish we had more time to look into this, but the messenger of the Lord, whoever that messenger of the Lord that appears sometimes in the Old Testament is, pops up and meets Hagar and tells her to return. Look at verse 16. Abraham is 86 years old. It has been 11 years since the promises were made to him in Genesis chapter 12. When we turn our page to get to Genesis chapter 17, 13 more years have passed. Now Abraham is 99 years old. It has been 24 years since Genesis chapter 12 and God made these three promises to Abraham. Look at verse 2. God reminds Abraham of the promise and makes it again. He tells Abraham, I'll multiply you greatly. Verse 4, God says, you will be a father of many nations. Verse 5, God changes Abram's name from Abram to Abraham. Now the name Abram means high father. Could you imagine going around 99 years of your life wanting children, not being able to have them, and your name means high father? How many times do you think Abram was reminded of that during his life? But now God is restating the promise to Abraham even in his name. The name Abraham meaning father of many nations. Look at verse 8. God reminds Abraham about the promise and he makes it again. He says, I'll give to you and to your offspring after you all the land of Canaan. Verses 7 through 10, God makes a covenant with Abraham and he has a physical way to signify it. Verse 10 says, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. In verse 16, God gets more specific with Abraham. He says, I'll bless Sarah and give you a son by her. Not just a son by anyone, but a son by Sarah. In verse 17, Abraham laughs in his heart. He thinks it's just too late. I'm just too old. 
Verse 18, Abraham asks God, he begs God, pleads with God, intercedes with God and says, will you just let Ishmael, my son, whom surely he loved, will you let him be the son of promise through whom the blessings will come? Verse 19, God says no. He restates the promise through Sarah. Verse 21, God gets even more specific and he tells Abraham that Isaac will be born within the next year. Chapter 18. Verses 1 and 2, God appears to Abraham with three men. And when Abraham sees them, he runs out to them and he begs them to come to his tent so that he can take care of them. Offer them some shade. Offer them some shelter. Offer them a place to sit. Offer them some food and drink. Look at verses 9 through 15. The men remind Abraham that Sarah will have a child. And Sarah, as she's working, maybe in the tent listening, overhears it and laughs, just like Abraham had. In verse 13 through 14, God says, Why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard? For the Lord? Well, what about it? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is it too hard for our God to exist forever? Is it too, God, too hard for God to have created the world? Is it too hard for Him to create man and woman, to have created plants and animals? Is it too hard for God to give an old woman a child, to give a virgin a child, to come to earth in the flesh? Nothing is too hard for our God. Why are these men, these angels, these messengers, why are they here? Verse 17. God says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? So God here is about to graciously share his plans with Abraham. Now we trust in the Lord, but have you ever wondered, I just wish God would share his plans with me. Not that he owes it to me, but I just wish I knew what was going on so I could handle it a little better. Because that's what God does in essence here with Abraham. He shares his plans with this faithful man. So in the following verses, God tells Abraham that he's come down to punish Sodom. He's come down to punish Gomorrah. Why did God come down? Could he not see? Is heaven too high? Is his throne too far from earth for him to be able to see? Well, we know that's not the case. God knows the number of hairs on our head. God knows when a sparrow falls. But God coming down is just another sign of his grace and his mercy. He comes down to see, as it were, to present himself at their level and to give them a last chance. And Abraham asks a powerful question in verse 23. He asks, will God destroy the righteous with the wicked, Abraham is pleading for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Abraham intercedes with God on behalf of the city. Abraham says in verse 24, he asks God to spare the city if there are 50 righteous, and God agrees. And then he asks for 45 righteous, and God agrees. He says 40, God agrees. He says 30, God agrees. He says 20, God agrees. He says 10, God agrees. Now I don't guess we know why he stopped at 10, but if you look at the next chapter, chapter 19, and you count Lot, in his family, there are at least 10 members in Lot's family. So maybe it is that Abraham is saying to God, if my family is faithful, will you save the city? But for whatever reason, Lot, uh, Abraham stops at 10 and God agrees. Chapter 19. Chapter 19 is a chapter without much Abraham in it. But no doubt we can feel Abraham's surprise and disappointment when the cities are destroyed because there weren't 10 righteous. Verses 27 through 29 tell us that the few righteous that were saved... Lot and two of his daughters were saved because of Abraham. Now look at verse 20. We won't look at our chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. 
We'll go through this chapter, but this is the second time Abraham makes a mistake. He tells his wife, look, we're going into an area. Someone may want you to be their wife. You're, you're an attractive woman, an honorable woman, a woman who presents herself well. People would want to have her, to be with her, to be around her. And so in order that I might be saved, in order that I, I don't get killed in the process, let's tell people you're my sister. And so this is the second of those occurrences. In this story, we find out that, well, Abraham was telling the truth to an extent in that Sarah actually was his sister. They shared a father. But we also learn from this that a, a half-truth is really a whole lie. Now look at chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. Finally, it happens. The Lord visits Sarah like He promised He would 25 years earlier. And Sarah becomes pregnant. She has a son by Abraham, and like God commanded, he's named Isaac. And there's great joy. But it doesn't take long or take much before there are problems. Hagar, the mother of Ishmael, mocks Sarah, and it hurts Sarah. And she asks Abraham to kick them out. And Abraham doesn't want to do it because he loves his son Ishmael, but God tells Abraham to listen to Sarah and not to worry because Ishmael will be blessed with a great nation as well because he's Abraham's son. In verse 14, Abraham rose up early in the morning and sent them away. And in the following verses, we see the messenger of the Lord come to Hagar and to Ishmael and to promise to take care of them. Now, we have flown through the chapters, and we've flown through the years of Abraham's life. It has been 25 years since God first visited Abraham in Genesis 12 and made these three promises to him. And there may have been as many as 25 more years between the end of chapter 1, 21 and 22. We need to appreciate the fact that Abraham is growing and changing and progressing. And each of these victories and missteps has been a part of the process as God works through him. So look at chapter 22. This has all been leading up to Genesis chapter 22. God has chosen Abraham. He's made him promises, amazing history changing promises. You're old and you don't have kids, but I'll make a great nation for you. You're homeless, you've left your homeland, but I will give you land. I will give you this land for those descendants. And then I will bless everyone on the earth, past, present, and future, through you. That is, Jesus, the Savior, God in the flesh, will come through your seed. God's protected Abraham. He's been patient with Abraham. He saved Abraham and his family. Josephus, the historical writer, says that Isaac was 25 years old at the time of Genesis chapter 22. And if that's the case, Abraham and Isaac have had 25 years to bond, to have a love that only a father and a son can have for each other. Abraham is resting on the promises that God has made him. I imagine he had a smile on his face knowing that even if I die today, God's promises are kept. And Isaac is set up for a future of faith and fortune and protection by God. Now in Genesis 22, God is going to ask for something from Abraham. And it's big. Look at verses 1 through 2. And after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. Can you hear this conversation? God calls for Abraham. Abraham hears the voice of God. And I imagine when Abraham heard the voice of God, he was overjoyed. Abraham loves the voice of God. God has taken care of him. God has called him out of nothingness into historical relevance. He's given him family. He's given him land. He's given him the promise of the Messiah. And so Abraham loves the voice of God. But can you imagine how quickly Abraham's heart sank as he listened to God say, Take your son, your only son, your son, your son whom 
you love and sacrifice him. This is the ultimate version of what the rich young ruler would one day be told by Jesus. The rich young ruler asked Jesus, what can I do to get eternal life? And Jesus ultimately tells him, give up what you love more than me. His challenge was to love the giver of the blessings more than he loved the blessings themselves. And now Abraham here has that same challenge to the ultimate degree. Look at verses 3 and 4. Abraham gets up early in the morning. He gets Isaac, two servants, and the supplies for the sacrifice, and he goes. Verse 4 says, On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Did you catch that? On the third day. You mean Abraham had to try to act like everything was okay in front of other people for three days. He had to try to go to sleep two more nights knowing what he was about to do. He had to march through and live with it for the next 72 hours. But he did. And I think there's a parallel here. How long was God's son, God's only son, God's son whom he loved, dead? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, when it's talking about this story, tells us that Isaac was figuratively dead for those three days. He was a dead man walking. God takes his only son, his son whom he loves, and he marches through time even before the foundation of the world, knowing what will happen to him. Abraham lays his son upon the wood, just like Jesus would later be. But here's the difference. Abraham's son got off the altar. God's son did not. Look at verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now how did Abraham think that he was going to bring Isaac back? Was he going to run away like Jonah had done? Was he going to change his mind? No, of course not. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19 tells us that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham believed he would have to go through with it, but some way or another, God would bring Isaac back. Those verses say, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. His hand was raised. He was going to do it. Verse 18, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now let's not rush past this. You and I believe in resurrection because we have a Bible full of examples. We know that Elijah raised the widow of Zarephath's son. We know that his protege, Elisha, raised the Shumanite woman's son from the dead. We see Jesus raise the widow of Nain's son, Jairus' daughter, and Lazarus from the dead. Peter resurrected Dorcas. Paul resurrected Eutychus. We know Jesus rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about the fact that we are promised a resurrection after this life because Jesus rose from the dead. And so we believe in resurrection with every fiber of our being because we have a Bible full of examples and a God who promised it to us. But each of these examples happened long after Abraham was dead and buried. And to our knowledge, Abraham never had such an example of resurrection, but it didn't matter. Abraham didn't trust in life or in death or even have to understand them, but he trusted in the one who gives life and death and the one through whom all things are possible. Abraham believed in resurrection simply because he believed in God. And that's powerful. Back to Genesis 22. Look at verses 6 through 14 with me. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, Here I am, my son. 
And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And God restates the promise to Abraham again. Look at verses 15 through 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now God ends this section listing the descendants of Abraham's brother. We have just had one of the most memorable stories and experiences in all of recorded history that happened to one of the top men of the Bible. Now why do we end this section listing his brother's kids? Look at verse 23. One of the sons that was born to his brother will go on to be the father of Rebekah, who will marry his son, Isaac, and who will give birth to Jacob and Esau. This great event, as great as it was, was just one of the pieces. Abraham, as great as he was, was just a man and just a part of the puzzle. The real hero of the story, the real focus here, is God. God's plan continues to roll, unfolding just like he planned before the foundation of the world. And here God is, already making preparations for the next stage. Look quickly with me at Hebrews chapter 11. We'll look at two more references to Abraham. We'll make a couple points for us and then, then we'll be done. Hebrews chapter 11, of course a chapter filled with, with great men and women of the Bible, some of the great things that they did. And Abraham being such a great man of faith is mis mentioned in two different sections. Verses 8 through 10 and then again at the end in verses 17 through 19. Verses 8 through 10, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then verses 17 through 19, which we read earlier. I want to give you a, a few quick things that I think that we can get from this lesson. And then two final things that I think are the, the main point and the main focus of not only Abraham, but Hebrews chapter 11. First of all, the story of Abraham is a story of God keeping his promises. God is not just a promise maker, but he's a, a promise keeper. Number two, most of the promises that were made to Abraham in Genesis were not fulfilled until after his death. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 15 says he waited patiently for the promises that he did receive. I guess so, 25 years. Number three, we have free will. God did not make Abraham obey, and he will not make us obey. If we want to rebel against God, 
God is going to allow us that opportunity and give us that choice. Number four, the people and the things that we have are not ours. They've been given to us so that we can improve them and give them back to God and so that we can be a blessing to others. And then finally on this little short list, God will provide. He's already provided so much and He'll continue to provide even more. Now finally, the last two things I want us to think about will help us understand and appreciate Genesis 12 through 22 in a bigger way. In Matthew chapter 3 and in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is out preaching in the wilderness. And you'll remember some of the, the Jews come to him and they say, well, we want to be baptized. And what's John's reaction? Well, great, come on down into the river and I'll baptize you. No, John says, no, 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 you generation of vipers. First, show some fruits of repentance. Actually change. Actually show that you want to do the right thing. And then baptism can be considered. It's as, it's as if John the Baptist knew their hearts, or at least their character. They were the kind of pretentious, arrogant people who thought that they could live however they wanted to just because they had Abraham as their father. They must have thought, we don't need to ask for any kind of forgiveness because we're already saved. Abraham is our father. Well, John shoots that down and says, God could make sons of Abraham from these stones. The message for us in that, I think, as Christians, is this. Our history does not save us. Just because we were baptized and we go to a church of Christ and we never miss services and we have a history of family Christianity, we can't rest on those things any more than the cold, non-repenting Jews could say, well, Abraham is our father. We're good. Those things are important, of course, but Psalm 51.17 says, the sacrifices of God or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. And God can make Christians out of the pews and out of the rocks out in the parking lot just like He could have made descendants of Abraham from the stones of John the Baptist's day. And second and finally, Hebrews chapter 11 ends with a list of men and women of faith. We read about Abel. We read about Noah. We read about Moses. We read about Abraham twice. There's so many good ones at the end of the chapter. He says, look, time fails me to even tell you about David and about Samuel. But chapter 12 starts with this. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Well, what witnesses? Well, all the brothers and sisters, all the biblical heroes from Hebrews chapter 11. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely... And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here it is, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. So the point for us is this. We love the men and women of the Bible. We learn so much about God, about His will for us, about our lives through the men and women of the Bible. But this cloud of witnesses, these great Bible characters that surround us, they're all encouraging us to do the same thing. They're all saying, as it were, don't look at us, look at Jesus. He's the hero of the story. And so it, so it is with us. We're just men, we're just women, just like these men and women were. And God can use us if we'll give our lives to Him. And He will. We're not the best thing that's ever happened to the church. None of these men and women are the best thing that has ever happened to the church, but God is. So that's the point. Genesis chapter 12 through 22 is to show the greatness of God and the plan that he set in motion before there was even a world to save.
So this morning I want to invite you to do a couple of things. First of all, if you're not a Christian, does this long process that God went through not impress you with His patience, with His foresight, with His willingness to work out through time and eternity a plan that could be brought and delivered to you, hand-delivered to you today, and say, if you want to be saved, you can. You can be part of God's plan. Does God's patience with people 400 years, 22 years with men like Ezekiel, 120 years with men like Noah who preached, does His patience not encourage you to come back, to come to God, to give your life to Him? God is patient. But like we learned in class this morning, God's not going to wait forever. But you do have an opportunity right now. If you're not a Christian, be impressed with, with how hard God has worked to offer you this gift of salvation. And become a Christian. Give your life to Him. But this morning I realize most of us are probably Christians. You've got an opportunity to get something that money can't buy. Could you imagine the value on asking a room full of Christians to pray for you? It may be a health concern that you'll be healed completely. It may be something that you're struggling with in a spiritual perspective. Take the power away from that sin. Put it out into the light. Ask people for help and for prayers. You can't put a value on something like that, but you could do that for free this morning. So if you're not a Christian, be impressed with these things about God. Become one. If you are and you need help with anything, God cares and we care. And we'd love to pray for you if we can. If we can help you in any of those ways, why don't you come forward and let us do it while we sing this song. Tender Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. Sing a love in waiting and watching, watching.